Good morning, church. A reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already, already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Well, I hope that y'all are doing well in this cloudy morning. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you. Uh, last week, Pastor Randy from River Church in Brownsville preached on Ecclesiastes 8, and I am very thankful for him. Uh, in the event that you did not hear Gabe, we're going to find ourselves in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Uh, while you open or load your Bibles, just a couple of quick updates. The first one is that if you are new, we would love to hang out with you or simply have the opportunity to pray for you. So fill out a Connect card, leave it in the Connect desk, which is located in the back, and one of our staff team members will get with you within a day or so. In addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, we want to hook you up. We want to hook you up with God's Word. That is our gift to you. Those are also located in the back. Well, other than that, that's all I got, so let's jump right in. As I mentioned, if you're new to Storehouse, in case you didn't know, we've been in a sermon series out of the book of Ecclesiastes. This book is located in the Old Testament, and the writer, most likely, is King Solomon, which is King David's son. And he's been writing about the meaning of life under the sun. You're going to hear this phrase over and over again as we walk through these passages under the sun. In this, what could be considered his memoirs, he walks us through the various experiences he experiments with to try and discover meaning, purpose, and value at life in a broken world. 
And so before we dive into chapter 9, one thing that is important to note is that at this point in the book, or let me back up a little bit, it is the first half of the book of, of Ecclesiastes, Solomon spent a great deal of time laying his experiences and questions on the table for us. And as we have transitioned into the second half of this book, you're going to notice that his tone has changed. It has changed more towards practical application. It has changed towards the revelation of his conclusions. What did he find as he had all of these life experiences? And in these conclusions, he's ultimately going to share with us what we are to do with these conclusions. As I mentioned earlier, Pastor Randy from River Church in Brownsville preached last week and he walked us through chapter 8, which bleeds well into our text this morning. And so in case you weren't here, the start of chapter 9 gives us an opportunity to look back at chapter 8 very, very briefly. <clears throat> and at what Solomon is saying in chapter 8 gives us a little bit more context into chapter 9, a little bit more, a little bit more understanding. And so if you would direct yourself to, actually to chapter 9, in the opening words, Solomon writes, but all this I laid to heart. That word this is referring to what he's already said in chapter 8. The context of chapter 8 seems to revolve around two things, corrupt governments and sinners. We're all part of at least one of those problems. And so he gives us three things to consider. This is all chapter 8. Just going to go through these very, very quickly. He gives us three things to consider. The first thing is he gives us the path of wisdom to consider. He says it this way. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Remember, the context is corrupt governments. And so he's saying because there is corruption, the righteous can still follow the path of wisdom in spite of that corruption. That doesn't mean that the righteous approve or, and, or are negligent to corruption, but they exercise wisdom as they navigate such circumstances. Well, how do they do so? That leads us to the second point, and that is the fear of God. In verses 12 and 13, Solomon says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. In a nutshell, the righteous have a long view of what life means and what is to come after this life because of their trust and fear in God. Their trust is not in the season, in the supremacy of leadership, or in themselves. Rather, it is in God. And so because of that, it leads them to the third thing, to be able to rejoice. Verse 15, Solomon says, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. In the midst of seasons and leaders and corruption, Solomon commends those who are able to find joy in spite of the corruption happening around them. Not because they're ignoring it, but because their trust is in God. Their view is one of faithfulness and wisdom that leads them to rejoice. So in short, Solomon says that if we don't pursue contentment and seek to trust the Lord, 
then it will leave us wait it will leave us waiting life out as we grow in anger and bitterness because of what's happening around us this anger and bitterness is ultimately a longing for more but with the inability to actually find enjoyment and this is what Pastor Randy was getting at last week when he mentions that in us, we actually have a longing for more, a longing for better, but a longing that can't be delivered, that longing that cannot be met by this world. Therefore, logically, it means that we were designed for something more, for another type of world. And so when the righteous walk in wisdom and fear God, they can rejoice in spite of the condition that the world finds itself in. And it leads to ask the question, well, how, what does this have to do with chapter 9? How does this take us into chapter 9? You could see it this way. If you are consumed by bitterness and anger, what are you living for? Because what chapter 9 is going to really push in our face is this. What you believe about death shapes how you live today. What you believe about death shapes how you live today. When we looked at chapter 7, Solomon had us consider death. Here we are in chapter 9, considering it once more. Let me pray, and then we'll dig into our time. Lord, in your word, you tell us to pray for wisdom, to ask you for wisdom, but to do so in faith. And so, Lord, number one, we thank you for allowing us to gather on a morning like this. And number two, we are asking you for wisdom. If we have some, can we have more? If we have none, would you give us some? As we consider your word through Ecclesiastes, may it be sweeter than the taste of honey. Holy Spirit, would you please be at work in us um, and through us this morning? Fix our eyes on your word and certainly on the work of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right. Y'all ready? Okay, here we go. So at this point, Solomon is now going to be telling us about all of his conclusions to all of his life experiences as he has examined so much under the sun. We're going to examine two sections. We're going to examine a section called Remember Death. And that takes place in verses 1 through 6, and then uh, 11 and 12. And then we're going to look at enjoy life. And that is verses 7 through 9. So let's look at the first one. This is remember death. Solomon alludes to death at least nine times in this section. And as we walk through chapter 9, he at least provides us with five conclusions about death. Okay? So here we go. Here is the first conclusion here that, that Solomon arrives to. This is found in verse 1 and 2. And the first conclusion is, death is certain. If you want to be certain about anything, it is that death is certain. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how you've lived, morality is no match for mortality. Right? Verse 1 and 2. All of this I laid to heart, examining it all how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. The words love and hate refer to adversity and prosperity. 
that none of us know what's ahead of us, whether we will be facing adversity or whether we will be receiving prosperity, we don't know. He's ultimately saying those things come from the hands of God. Because you could do all the right things, you could say all of the right things, you could pursue all of the right careers and make all of the best decisions and still end up in adversity. Adversity and prosperity come from the hand of God. And so the challenge there is you're not as in control as you think. That doesn't mean that your decisions don't matter, right? That's one thing where people are like, well, then this doesn't matter. Solomon's not saying that. He's saying that all of these things come from the hand of God. And so none of us know what lies ahead and what we will receive. So number one, what you and I need to know is in light of that, doesn't mean that life is meaningless. It just means that death is certain. It's going to happen, right? The second conclusion, and we're going to walk through some of these quickly. Some of them we're going to park on a little bit more. The second one is that death is invincible. This is verses two through the start of, cha- or, uh, through the start of verse three. He says, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. The phrase same event refers to death. So if he's not using the actual word death, he's alluding to it using imagery and using other types of language. So he says that it doesn't matter who you are, not only is death certain, it's invincible. Under Adam's curse, death is undefeated. The same event, as I mentioned, refers to death. And so he goes on, whether you're righteous or you're wicked, we all die. Whether you're clean, repentant or not, we're going to die. Whether you're sacrificial and generous or you're not sacrificial and you're super stingy and greedy, our time will come to an end. Whether you're good, in other words, you know the Lord or a sinner, you do not know the Lord, our time will come to an end. Whether you swear an oath, man, I promise I'm going to do this, I promise this is how I'm going to live, or you never do any of those things. You and I have an expiration date. Pretty plain and simple. But Solomon, in verse 3, goes on to say that this, that is death, even though it's invincible and all under Adam's curse die, he goes on to say, this is an evil under the sun. Go to verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. What Solomon is saying is, this wasn't what life was supposed to be like. Death was never supposed to be a main character in the story of our world. Death was never supposed to exist or become an enemy or take what is so precious from us. Death, as Paul to the Corinthians says, is an enemy and we fall to it. Death may be invincible, but it is still an evil And over the course of the last couple of chapters, Solomon has been trying to wrap his brain around this because he's angry and he doesn't understand it and he doesn't like the uh, Jesus-only answer. But he's coming to these conclusions that death is an evil. But then look at the second half of verse three. This leads us into the third conclusion. Solomon continues. Also, so it's not just that it's an evil. There's this other thing about death. He says, also... The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. So he makes us own up to a couple of things. He just doesn't leave it out there philosophically. 
though life wasn't supposed to be like this, we need to understand that we're the ones that sinned against God when he told us to put our trust in him. We are the ones that forfeited his trust for our own desires. The Apostle Paul regularly speaks and writes about the flesh, that is, our internal desire to rebel against God. So it's not only that death is an evil, that this isn't the way it's supposed to be, and just because things are the way they are doesn't mean that's right. But at the same time, the other side of the coin is, hey, we're actually the ones that forfeited trust in God, and we're the ones who have sinned against God, and we're the ones who actually have the internal problem. So he presents both sides of that coin. Therefore, to the Romans, for example, Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death. So not only is death invincible, not only is death evil, death is deserved. That is what you and I deserve. We are under the wrath of God apart from the grace of God. Who could argue? We have inherited Adam's guilt. We walk as sinners by nature and choice. And yet, in Romans 6, there's this little word. The word is but. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, thank God for all the buts in the Bible. So he says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The gift of salvation rests on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. It rests on the basis of Jesus' faithfulness. It rests on the, on, on the basis of Jesus' death in our place and for our sin, which liberates us from the curse of sin and death. This free gift of God is not a get-out-of-hell ticket or simply fire insurance. It is transformation. See, our problem is not simply an external problem, it is an internal one. That is why Solomon writes that the hearts of the children of man want madness, that they want to rebel. And the only answer to this internal problem is a heart change, a transformation, one that you can't make on your own, no matter how well you preach, be better or just do better. Rather, it takes place under surrender at the work of the Lord Jesus for you. Death may be deserved, but praise be to God that Jesus did not leave us there as he, at the right time, died for the ungodly. Praise be to his name. Number four. Death is a teacher. This is verses four through six. He writes, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. He says, death teaches us that if you are still alive, then there is still hope. If you are still alive, that's you and I right now, there is still hope. 
And he adds this wonderful proverb in order to bake our noodles. He says, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. In the Peanuts cartoon, Theology and the Dog, Snoopy is on top of his doghouse, typing away, as he normally does. And in the next sketch, Charlie Brown comes up to the doghouse, and Snoopy rips off the paper and he gives it to Charlie Brown, and Charlie Brown reads it out loud. And Snoopy had said, as it says in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Charlie Brown looks puzzled, gives the paper back to Snoopy and asks, what does that mean? Snoopy replies, I don't know, but I agree with it. <laughs> In Solomon's day, dogs, like our beloved Snoopy, were not so beloved. Right? It's not the way most people treat their dogs today. Right? Like there's people who in their like social media bios literally says like, like dog mom or dog dad that would have been looked down on in Solomon's day. Okay? But I digress. Dogs were considered lowly animals. They were seen as a misery. But in this proverb, what Solomon is saying is that even the miserable life of a dog is better than the life of the king of the jungle who's in his coffin. And so when we considered chapter 7 a couple of weeks ago, we considered death for the first time through Ecclesiastes. And Solomon challenges us with this one thought and this one question. That when it comes to death, Solomon is saying, this is inevitable. Therefore, what are you living for? What do, you give your, what do you give yourself to? What do you give your life to? And if that's not enough, Solomon elaborates on death as a teacher. He continues, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy have all perished. Whether it was adversity or whether it was prosperity, it's done, it's over with. If they were anger and bitter, it's done, it's over with. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Solomon ultimately is saying the dead know absolutely nothing because it's all over. Everything is all over. Their time under the sun has come to an end. However, the living know that they will die. Therefore, what is it that you are living for? Who is it that you are living for? What you believe about death shapes how you live today. It shapes what you believe about life today. And so Solomon is saying, death is a teacher, death is an evangelist. It is giving us this wake-up call. And so then we come to our fifth and final conclusion. This is in verses 11 and 12. He says that death is sudden. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance. It's not a really a good translation, but he's ultimately saying like the will, right? Like ultimately they expire. They didn't expire by luck. They expire. 
He continues, for man does not know his time. It doesn't matter who you are because morality is no match for mortality. Strength is no competition for sleep. Present day idols cannot save against real time expiration. And so Solomon, to prove his point, uses imagery in order to convey that none of us know our time. And so in verse 12, he says, For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So he's saying, in the ocean or in a lake, you'll have a school of fish, and they're just doing their thing, hanging out, being fish. And then all of a sudden, they throw these big old nets, and they catch these fish. They catch them, they kill them, they fillet them. They didn't know that was going to happen. He uses the imagery of birds. Birds land on the ground and they're just chirping, doing their thing, looking for some grub, looking for some worms. And then all of a sudden they step in a trap, it seals them, and they're killed. He uses imagery to illustrate that that's how death is. It's all of a sudden. If we were to boil it down to two things, hey, there's one thing that is certain, and that is death. Well, what is uncertain? The time of your death. That's ultimately what Solomon is getting at. Therefore, we must be aware, we must be alert that life is vanity. And that word vanity, remember, means a vapor, a mist, a breeze. None of us know when our time is, and none of us are immune to that. So in short, when we remember death, we are reminded that death is certain, death is invincible, death is deserved, death is a teacher, and death is sudden. And Solomon presses this because he doesn't want us to shy away from death as a teacher, from death as an evangelist. And most of the time in our culture, and this might even be you, we shy away from death. It's cool to talk about death theologically, like we are dead to our sin and alive in Christ, right? But when you really consider death, it doesn't sit well with our culture because our culture has an obsession with happiness, our culture has an obsession with individualistic consumerism. In other words, if you're not happy, go buy something. If you're not happy, then you do you. If you're not happy, just stop being unhappy and fake it till you make it. Unhappiness and death don't really sit well with our culture. It makes people feel uncomfortable and it wants, uh, it, it leads people to think, well, how do we just not feel this way as soon as possible? We don't like to think about death. But death teaches us way more about reality of life or the reality of life in a fallen world. Death teaches us that we can't bring back moments or people. We can't add more years to our lives. Death exposes our idols and then crushes them violently, but very realistically. Death preaches that this moment, this event, is inevitable. Therefore, What are you giving your life to? What you believe about death shapes what you believe about life today. 
shapes how you live life today. So after looking at these five conclusions, it's really easy to say, well, that was really sad. <sighs> Solomon just bummed us all out. We have some sad thoughts. We might even have some reflective thoughts. Well, what are we going to do? Once more, the beauty of God's word is that he does not just leave us there. And so through the Spirit of God, Solomon gives us the answer in verses 7 through 9. And so we're going to look at three things. Here's your practical application for those of you who are note takers. All right, we're going to look at spirits, spouses, and sweat. Spirits, spouses, and sweat. Before we dig into these applications, as we look at verse 7, I want you to notice the word go. Right? I'll read it, but I'm not diving into it just yet. He says, go eat your bread with joy. The word go is a command. It's a command. In all of these enjoyment passages, that is, every time Solomon has brought up eat, drink, and enjoy uh, the toil under the sun, eat, drink, and, and be merry, right, with a cheerful heart, every time he has mentioned it, it has been more suggestive. Right? It has been more suggestive as we pursue God in contentment. Here, the tone has totally changed. He goes from suggestion to command, and now there is urgency there is urgency in pursuing contentment. And it's been really interesting how I've had a lot of conversations with some of you and other friends where we've been talking a lot about contentment. And I find that it's not so much about the possessions we have or don't have or want, it's whether or not you're actually content. And so here, the word go, once more, is a command. There is urgency. There is, you could say it, a moral urgency to go and pursue contentment. And so let's begin with the first, spirits. Now, I don't mean to sound super mysterious, right? Or like overly hyped up about this. I just wanted to produce some alliteration, right? There's three S's. That, that sounds cool, right? I just wanted to produce some alliterations. Spirits be clear, is another word for alcohol. And because I've said that, let me be clear even more. I am not advocating for you to have to drink. If alcohol is not your thing, then praise God, don't drink it, and you can change it from spirits to Sprite if you want, right? Like, that's all good, okay? I'm just saying, I wanted to be kind of cool and spirits, or Sprite, spouses, and sweat just didn't fit. Nevertheless, alcohol here is not the point. Verse 7 is not an urgency to a hedonistic view of life. In other words, just drink and be merry because we're going to die tomorrow anyway. That is not what he's proving here or that is not what he's suggesting here. Instead, what he is saying is that God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Look at the verse. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God, the word for is like because, or because God has already approved what you do. I'm going to read that one more time, and I want you to just really just focus on that. God has already approved what you do. God takes pleasure in your pleasure. 
This verse is a flashback to the Garden of Eden where God told Adam and Eve that the trees and plants were ready to be eaten by them with the exception of one. And what God was telling them is that it's already been provided for you, therefore enjoy. These are my gifts to you. Enjoy them. This verse is also a fast forward to the doctrine of justification. We spent months on this doctrine when we were in Galatians. And this doctrine teaches that we are declared righteous. That is, that we are made right before God on the basis of faith alone. That is, because of what Jesus has done for us through his life, his death, and resurrection, we are approved by God. There is nothing for you to earn. There is nothing for you to prove. You have been approved by God through Jesus. Therefore, go and enjoy the sweet moments of life with the gifts God has given you to enjoy. This weekend, my son and I, along with some of the guys from our CG, went to uh, Austin to go uh, watch uh, Propaganda and King's Kaleidoscope. If you don't know who they are, doesn't matter. And the concert was awesome. It was a super small venue. We're on the second floor and uh, uh, Propaganda comes out. And we're all jamming out to him. King's K come out and we're all like screaming and we're singing along. I really thought that because we're on the second floor, we're like jumping so hard. Eventually I was going to cave, but it didn't. Praise God. At the same time, like tears are happening. We're all hugging each other because they're like leading us to, to worship God. And it was just these really sweet moments. But in addition to that, it was a really, really sweet moment with my son, right? Like he likes propaganda. He got to meet him. And so that was really cool. And then we all went out to like IHOP and ate all of this food because everybody's so tired because you're like sweaty with everybody and, and everybody's just been there for a long time. We were in line for a long time and it was just fun. That's it. That's my theology. It was fun. Some of you don't like to have fun. That's why you're boring. <laughs> when he says, go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. It's almost like the concert. He's like, hey, this is here for you. Hey, the, the job you have, that's so that you can get money so that you can go and do this thing with your friends. The, the dinners that you have with your family, he's like, yeah, 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 this is for you. Go and enjoy it. Go and enjoy it. One writer says it this way, when we enjoy his gifts, we are experiencing his favor. So I hope you enjoy spirits or Sprite. Number two, spouses. He says, where are we? Verse eight. Uh, let's go to verse nine. And we'll come back to verse eight. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Vain life, right? Like quick life. It's a vapor. Vain life that God has given you under the sun. This is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Okay, if you're married, here we go. He says, right, 
Yeah, he's talking about the dudes to the women, but I'm talking to married couples. He says, enjoy your spouse, not put up with your spouse. That's what it means in the Hebrew. When it's like, oh, what does it mean to enjoy your spouse? It means to enjoy your spouse. It does not mean to put up with your spouse. Enjoy your spouse. If you are not enjoying life, and if you are not enjoying one another, more than likely, you're simply taking what you want from each other to pursue other goals and desires. You see uh, husbands and wives looking down into the side. Because I love you, I'll read it again. If you are not enjoying life, and enjoying one another, husband and wife, then more than likely, you're simply taking what you want from each other to pursue other goals and desires. Marriage is not a gift, it is a gain. <laughs> and if this is the case, your spouse, once more, is not a gift, but something you have gained. And when this happens, you lose one another. What if I'm not married? Some of you may ask. Then I would say this. First, examine your heart. A relationship is not meant to be tossed to and fro. A relationship is a responsibility and a season of learning how to serve one another without becoming one another's God. And if you're good there as you examine your heart, if you're good there, then gentlemen, those of you who are single, ask the godly woman out on a date. Not via text, not through a DM. No te hagas. <laughs> Ladies, if the godly dude you're interested in is shy, timid, and he doesn't really know what to do, stop dropping breadcrumbs. If he hasn't picked them up by now, then either move on or tell him what's up. Corner him, tell him what's up. I promise you that will wake him up. I promise you he will make a decision. Whether it's he's in or he's not. You too, not the hagas. So then, what about the garments and the oil? I'm not going to lie, I don't know what he means. <laughs> Perhaps the garments were something for the bedroom. All right, the context is marriage between one man and one woman. <clears throat> so perhaps the garments were something for the bedroom, something that were meant to be worn specifically and strictly for your spouse. Right. Or they would wear white because white breathed well, and it was really hot in the desert. It could be that simple. Well, what about the oil? Oil was used like, uh, like what is it? I don't, I've never used it. What's it called? Uh, sunblock, right? Oil was used like sunblock. So maybe he's like, yeah, put on oil because you're in the desert, and the sun is really hot. He could also mean, hey, oil helps you smell good. So if you're going to be with your spouse, you may want to consider taking a shower every once in a while. Oil also represented blessing. 
And the context is, enjoy the wife of your life. This is your blessing. This is your gift. Right? I'm going to be real cheese. Right? This past Tuesday, my wife and I celebrated our wedding anniversary. Right? Yeah, that's what's up. Right? That's enjoying wife life, okay? <laughs> but the idea behind that is, man, that, that's a blessing. That, that is an example of, hey, this is, this, this is a gift from God. My wife, our marriage, this is a gift. Because you know what? This doesn't exist on the other side. This doesn't exist on the other side. And so what's the bottom line? Enjoy your spouse. They are who you have been given. Number three, sweat, right? Like, what does that mean? Work hard. That's it. Work hard. Verse nine, or excuse me, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work, thought, knowledge, or wisdom in shoal to which you are going. The word hand represents strength and ability. So when he writes... Whatever your hand finds to do, he's saying, man, what is your skill? What are you good at? What is your ability to do? What is it that you're passionate about? Whatever your hand finds to do, the word find means looking for opportunity. So what is your skill and what are you doing to go look for opportunity? And so when you put it together and he says, whatever your hand finds to do, he's saying, hey, whatever your skills are and whatever it looks like for you to find opportunity, give yourself fully to it. Commit yourself fully to the joy of whatever it is you want to pursue and its responsibilities. All right, it's not just, oh, I want to do this, and when it gets hard, I bounce. Find what your joy is and embrace it. Commit to it along with its responsibilities. Why? Because he goes on to say, work, knowledge, wisdom can only be sought in the land of the living. In Shoal, that is the realm of the dead, they cease to exist. There's no work, there's no knowledge, there's no wisdom in the grave. So do you work hard or do you complain? You can hear the words of Paul to the Colossians. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. All of these things, spirits, a spouse, and sweat, are gifts from God for us to enjoy. They're gifts for us to enjoy. And we must also guard ourselves lest these gifts become gods. One writer says it this way, in this created world, you can only truly enjoy what you do not worship. In other words, if these gifts have become gods, then you cannot actually find enjoyment because you are constantly seeking for that gift to deliver you and bring you satisfaction. The reality check is that satisfaction and enjoyment are sold separately apart from God. And if that pulls at your heart, whether it's spirits or a spouse or, or sweat, if that pulls at your heart, if you don't like that, what I just said, then more than likely it is because you've become enslaved to something that's even a good thing. When gifts become a God, we can no longer experience satisfaction because now we're using them 
to bring us something that they can never deliver. Therefore, by enjoying the gifts of God, by enjoying the gifts He's given us to enjoy, we can experience His favor because He has already approved of you. So as we close, this picture in verses 7 through 9 is filled with imagery of a feast. Right? Even though Solomon has given us some stark conclusions about death, he writes just as much about eating and drinking and finding contentment. When you fast forward to Jesus' time on earth and in his ministry, the amount of times Jesus and food are mentioned are pretty astounding. Why? Because Jesus, that is the ultimate Solomon, the greater Solomon, the one who embodied the wisdom Solomon was so desperately talking about, Jesus holds it out to us in him. Every single meal we've had is a slice of what is to come. Though this world is passing away, when we enjoy life and the gifts God has given us, we can celebrate wholeheartedly what life will look like in what is to come. So Christian, remember that the righteous have a long view of satisfaction. And right now, it is right now that we can remember death and ask, what is it that we're giving ourselves to? What is it that you are giving yourself to? Is someone or something that is meant to be a gift, has it become a God? If you're like, well, what does that mean? You're consumed by it. You're distracted by it. You hide it. Confess before the Lord Jesus. Repent with and by His grace. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It is by His grace that you can do so, for He has already approved of you. You come forward forgiven. You already come forward redeemed. It is for you. And if you don't know Jesus, apart from God, your heart is enslaved to idols. Your heart and your will are chained to idols. And the only way to be liberated, to be set free, is that you need someone greater, someone stronger to break those chains so that you can actually enjoy the gifts of God for you. But your heart must be renewed. Your heart must be renewed first through faith and repentance. And the greatest, God, the greatest gift God can give you is the gift of God himself. So church, what we believe about death shapes how we live today. What is it that you are giving yourself to? Let's pray. Almighty God, it is, it is by your grace that we have hope. You said it in your word. If we're alive, then there is still hope. 
So it is by your grace that we have it. Lord, it is by your grace that you have restored us to you, to one another, that you have restored our hearts. But Lord, if we're honest, our souls still hurt. Our hearts still ache. Our doubt shakes our faith and our pain is very real. Death, while certain, is not what we want to think about today. But because we live, there is hope. Because of Jesus, we can face today. Therefore, Lord, we confess our sin before you. Where we have rejected you. Where we have rejected our brothers our sisters. God, where we have ignored the Holy Spirit's leading in our life. Lord, would you comfort us, not only strengthen us, but would you comfort us by your grace? Not so that we would have all of the answers, but simply so that we would have comfort in the middle of complexity. Strengthen us, Lord, by the grace that is in Jesus. For it is only because of Jesus that we can face today. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.